Well, good morning. So it's uh, it's Monday morning. Uh, I had my uh, class this weekend uh, with a professor, uh, one of the foremost professors in Sanskrit. Uh, what we're learning about is uh, the ma, the Mahadevi. I guess it'd be uh, the Devi Mahatmya. Uh, it's um, it really is interesting because in a previous podcast I mentioned how. Our Father who art in heaven could just as easily have been our mother who art uh, in heaven, right? Because heaven being everything and very Tantra inspired. So learning about this great text, very old, uh, arguably even predates many of the texts that we hold dear in uh, Sanatana Dharma, Sankhya uh, philosophy. Um, We even mentioned uh, some Vedic stories. Right, might uh, even have some connections. So it's quite interesting. Uh, so I'm going to go through the class, just some insights that we uh, we went through. Uh, well, again, the Shakta world that we're talking about here. So it's important because we're trying to unite. The goddess is both this ferocious one and the compassionate one. Because there is this argument that we used to worship uh, the the mother aspect as uh, you know the destroyer, in a sense. Uh, but again, the real teaching is there's no separation between the destroyer and the creation. Uh, central narratives of the god of the goddess, as it were. So I love that we keep talking about how these are lived practices. Right, the devotion to the goddess, which is also the devotion to our meaning, our purpose, what we're here for, uh, the system, each other. So is lived practices, invoked mantras. I love that. Uh, he talks about, uh, he goes into more specifics later, but all of this being upaya, or skillful means uh, to achieve our goal. Our goal of individuation eventually is what we're going to see. But more importantly, just, you know, how to get through this life. Uh, accepting that suffering is guaranteed, uh, but not suffering more than is necessary. Right? That's the Shakta world. Right? Uh, then we talk about uh, how important it is that uh, we're looking to integrate the Sat and Chit uh, into uh, one form. Right, we talked about this before. Satchit Anand is um, existence, being, or consciousness, uh, and joy or bliss. Uh, so this attempt to unite these aspects uh, to achieve this bliss, or um, I've, as I've said before, right, the sixth sutra of uh, Isha uh, Upanishad is when you see the other in oneself and you see uh, the self in others. That's true liberation or mukti, this idea of feeling free, feeling at one. This, and I said this on my walk, and I guess I forgot to mark that down. This idea that we're either striving to disconnect or to connect. Because this idea of we already have within us this, this connection. So we're either consciously disconnected unconsciously disconnected, either willfully or, or uh, you know, uh, unknowingly. So we either wake up to the truth of our oneness with the universe. I've explained this before, this idea of the Atma uh, is 
at once your being yourself, but it is also the other. And it's beautiful that in this class he explained it in in, in the sense that uh, the Mahamati or the Maha uh, Kali, I think at the time we were talking, uh, but the Mahamati, whatever you want to call it, the Great Mother, is both um, you and the other. I'm going to talk about this later. It's the same idea of what they teach kenosis. I, I like to teach kenosis, the idea of uh, when Jesus emptied himself and filled himself up, this idea of him coming to earth and living as a limited human being, I think belies a, a deeper lesson of uh, koinonia, that we as well need to realize that we aren't just this limited creature. Because the lesson goes so deep is that even when Christ uh, achieved this kenosis idea of he emptied the aspect of godliness from himself, and I don't know if this is a way to justify this idea of man versus God, but it doesn't matter because the deeper lesson is that Christ emptied himself of his godlike aspect, where more importantly, the opaya that he was able to bring to bear, right? He was able to uh, do just about anything, embody just about anything. So he wanted to be limited, not unlike the obscure night of the soul by St. John, this idea that we are tried so that we can become more spiritually whole, more spiritually liberated, right? It's the same idea I've mentioned before that David Goggins uh, speaks to, that you're either, and, and I'm summarizing his philosophy, but he essentially says that if you're not growing, you're atrophying. If you're not getting better, if you're not challenging, you're just challenging yourself constantly, you're more likely um, losing, right? You're losing uh, skill, you're losing cognition, you're, you're losing ability. Like I said before, uh, if we become disconnected from each other, we tend to lose our, um, our social connection, but more importantly, we, we get out of, of, of um, habit of how you know, social interaction goes. And it's in learning these little uh, unwritten rules that we learn how to balance that opposite of the self and the other, the community, the need for connection, but also the need to, uh, to separate oneself. Right? Not disconnect, but that's where this mistake comes in. Right? We're never disconnected. So it's just how much independent uh, existence do we lead? Right? Do we give of ourselves completely to the whole? Are we completely selfish and narcissistic that we only uh, embrace the self? It's not that different from uh, the Chinese Book of Change, this idea of walking the central path or the golden mean, is an attempt uh, to balance insufficiency and, and excessive, right? So that you don't have too much or too little of what you need. Uh, but the beginning of that is know thyself so that you know what you truly need. We're going to talk about that probably later, this idea that you have to understand what's good versus evil or beneficial or, or hindering, right? What is an attachment and what is, you know... Um, well, we'll get to that in a moment here. So like I said, I mentioned uh, it's important to understand Sat, Chit, Ananda are not truly separate ideas. Right? Because this mind, intellect, and ego, right? so the, the physical 
the Vedanta or the volition, how we think and feel, and right? and then this idea of the ego. Right? Again, you can understand that you are an individual, a separate uh, form of a whole needing to exist independently. But that doesn't mean, as I've said before, you're not the, the base of the universe. You're not the, the base of the sky. You're not the hinge print of the universe. You play a part. It's important what you do, your kriya, your karma, your, your, your actions, your cause and effect have an, an impact on the universe. But it is not the be-all, end-all. Right? So it's a Mahamaya, making all possible. Right? So the great illusion, or in this case, we're actually uh, saying that this is uh, the all in creation is an expression of the goddess. So Mahamaya is referring to Sat and Chit and Ananda all at once. Mahamaya, meaning great uh, Maya illusion. So great illusion, but great existence. Uh, great uh, creation, whatever you want to call it, all of it being uh, expressions of the goddess. So without embracing our truth, we never truly experience life. And uh, Professor Timosina used uh, an expression about a mango. Right? The mango can be ripe, ready for picking, but uh, while it's in the tree, you, you can't really do much with that. You have to get it out of the tree. And, and I love how this even relates to the idea of two, two truths of reality. Now it goes a little bit deeper than that, where you can look at uh, that conventional reality, an argument in Buddhism. Is conventional reality real? Is it an illusion? I like the third stance in this case. It's agreeing with both and saying, yes, it's an illusion. Yes, it's real. But, right, so yes, it's real because we have to interact with it. So, I mean, conventionally real, non-conventional, I don't care how you define it, because we have to live within this system, whatever it may be, is it a shared delusion, doesn't matter. We have to live with it, we have to work with it, it's all we have. So for that reason, we have to treat it as such, real. Just as I've mentioned, Carl Jung says we have to use imagination, uh, fantasy, sense and nonsense and treat them as real and valuable while we interact with them so that we can use that to gain a deeper insight into ourselves and into our existence right um so the two truths of reality i like that as an idea he goes on talking about tapas and free will right we must work towards samadhi samadhi that's why I say Dharma Sattva. Dharma Sattva is the path that we follow, right? Dharma being our existence, but also our truth, also um, the teaching. And Sattva being, you know, your ultimate goal, the best person you can possibly be, or just being, as the, um, the expression goes, being a mensch, being a human being, a valuable human being, right? Uh, and then he goes on, and I love that uh, the first chapter uh, speaks on moha, delusion, and how important um, delusion is, moha. 
That's why we talk about the Maha, Maha, Maha uh, Maya, because uh, it's at the heart of this teaching. Right? Because again, Maha relates to Kama, right? sensual, sensuality, the centrality of our attachment to desire, to anger, to jealousy, all has to do with, with uh, delusion, Maha. Right? He deserves something that, you know, I deserve something that he doesn't, or vice versa. Right? Delusion-based. Uh, so, and I love how we talk about this, that it's definitely the um, integration of the shadow, because we're talking about fear and fury, uh, and its use in Chantra or Durga worship, this uh, goddess aspect in a fierce form, Durga. But again, transmuting the fierceness of the Durga into something that can also be compassionate. And it's to teach us the lesson that we control or subdue our uncontrollable fury, our Vedana. So it's us, and only us, that can control and subdue our, um, I guess our lot, technically. Because if you think about it, cause and effect. Whatever you attach to, whatever you desire, ends up being your reality. We go on, he's talking about uh, animals used as, um, what do you call it, metaphor. Uh, he said it's important to understand, and I love that he's honest, that some of these references, some of the metaphors as to why this god had a, an animal head versus another. He made a joke first, because he said, I love that, that he says that. Um, nobody ever asks why the gods have a human face, right? <laughs> Everyone's always asking about why they have an animal face when... We never stop and go, well, wait a minute, yeah. Who's to say what sort of aspect that an actual god uh, would uh, would take on? Because they can take on any aspect. And, and us as a limited creature, we wouldn't be able to imagine anyone. So I've mentioned this before. The, there's the source, the basis for the anti-idolatry in Christianity. Because imagine the hubris of someone who thinks they can imagine what the aspect of God is and therefore even carve it instead of, like I said before, uh, language fails. Uh, how can we not realize that or even our own imagination and our own understanding, our own cognition would fail in certainly, certainly in areas um, that we just don't seem to understand. Right? I love to refer back to the Good Friday experiments where they gave religious people psychedelics and the experience they had. For me, the takeaway was it's no difference between a religious person having a psychedelic experience or a run-of-the-mill person having a psychedelic experience. It is likely going to be perceived as a spiritual experience. Nietzsche said this, uh, whenever we have something that seems greater than ourselves, a great idea, a great experience, an insight, uh, whatever you want uh, to give as an example, we we have so little faith in our own potential that we attribute it uh, to an external source. All right? We invent these gods. Right? So we go on, uh, and I love that he mentions the mantras. Right? Om. I mean, it's perfect. The way he explained it is um, you can teach someone that this, the, the om symbol, the om sound, Again, the, the animals, animals uh, we try to recreate it, some of these sounds in the universe. So the animals are, are making sounds 
similar to the way we do. Om is supposed to be the sound that embodies all of all of creation, all of existence. Right? So you can be taught that Om means everything. It is being at one with the universe. And you can chant the Om. But that doesn't guarantee that you are going to even realize uh, the truth of these lessons, let alone achieve this unity, uh, this, this principle of, uh, of oneness. Right? So it's not just studying. That was a big point that we talked about. But in this case, we're talking about mantra and sound as a powerful weapon. Right? So it's not just the mantra, but it's the, uh, the repeating of, it's the devotion, it's the commitment to because it brings this focus and this this ability to actually put uh, in science put the uh, the default mold network to sleep in a sense and the way I do it is uh, on my walk I was listening to the obscure night of the soul in English I'm seriously considering studying it in the Spanish as I've done with a few other uh, texts uh, in the original language just to get a deeper understanding and it shouldn't be as hard for me uh, since uh, Spanish is closer to French uh, than many other languages. In fact, I actually had to stop learning Spanish and Italian uh, because I kept mixing them together. Uh, never mind my French. But long story short, for me... Uh, how can I put this here? So on my walk, I tried doing the, um, you know, the mala. Right, so it's the physical, right, which which works. I prefer, you know, the rings on my uh, opposite hands, both hands. That keeps me focused on the physical, and plus I have so much chronic pain, and, and I blew out my foot there a few months ago. So I'm arthritis in my toes, never mind that. So I'm always reminded of my somatic experience, right? Um, so that's not as much of a big deal for me. But it's staying focused, right, this mindfulness aspect. So I've progressed to the point now where I'm able to listen to an audiobook and yet still allow my mind to wander. So what I've found is there's a couple different practices you can do. In fact, I think this is an important practice for many to consider uh, for audiobooks because you can consume a book at a much higher rate than in an audiobook than you can by reading. But so many people say they have a hard time focusing. So here's a practice. It's the same thing as mantra, but it's not specifically, oh, it has to be this mantra. It's like the story I told before that someone uh, asked the Dalai Lama to explain to this lady that she was uh, chanting the mantra incorrectly. Yet the Dalai Lama pointed out that this lady seemed to walk around under the protection of, of essentially a, a parasol of protection from the mantra that she was chanting, chanting. So the Dalai Lama explained, I believe this was the 13th Dalai Lama, explained that how can her mantra be wrong if it's giving her all of the benefits that your supposed correct mantra would provide? Because right? for a long time I was bothered by the fact that I still can't stick to Om Mani Padme Om. I often will do Om Padme Mani Om. And I always thought it had something to do with me having been self-taught early on, right? But as time has gone on, this is decades now, 
come to realize it doesn't matter. Right? The only thing that would matter is if you were focusing incorrectly. Right? So what I realized is if I put too much attention at focusing and making sure om, and I just did it now, I had to stop and think, is it Mani Padme Om or Padme Mani Om? Well, because I spent so much time trying to remember which way, I wasn't getting the benefits. Right? Same as in uh, the Bible, uh, as quoted by St. John in The Obscure Night of the Soul, this idea that um, the faithful were impeached by God to leave their ceremonial dress at home. Or the opposite would be to wear your ceremonial dress in everyday life. Right? To, to either make the ceremonial commonplace or to turn uh, you know the commonplace into uh, ceremony right so I just make it simple so what I started with uh, was picturing the words as I listened to them because right? it did help uh, because sometimes these guys that, that are reading the books uh, have trouble with pronunciation so sometimes I have to pay attention to get an idea of what word they meant but believe it or not, it's an incredible tool both to learn and to focus and arguably then contemplation, meditation. So as the audiobook is, is going, I will picture the words as if it would be written on a blackboard. And you get really good at it to the point where I can play around. I'm still listening, right? You're usually listening a sentence ahead from what you're writing in your head. I can play around as a Canadian with, depending on the author, whether he'd be spelling labor with a U or not, or is it center, R-E or E-R, just a little inside joke. Just, again, to encourage this focus. So today I went one step further, and not only was I picturing the writing in my mind being put up on a whiteboard or a, um, a blackboard, when I grew up, they were green boards. It's funny we never called them green boards. They called them chalkboards, not blackboards, but still. I would picture the words as was being said, but I would also say them back to myself. I would actually repeat them as if each sentence were a mantra without losing the next sentence, right? Because you have to. And believe it or not, my focus didn't fail. The only time I failed is when the street got too noisy for me able to hear the words. But this incredible talent we all have in Japanese is called shikaku. It's this ability that you already have, an innate skill that you only have to reawaken to. Kind of like riding a bike, that joke we talk about, that... How many people ride their bike when they're a kid? No problems. You know, 40, 50 years later, we haven't ridden a bike in how long, yet we still seem to be able to get right back at her with a little bit of focus. Right? So I love that this is what we're talking about. Right? Because he says sound can be both creative and destructive. Is that so true? It can be distracting or it can be focusing. I've seen that myself. But that's simply a choice. When I was in school, the fan going in class would distract me. But after years of practice, 
Right? I've learned that lesson. Let's just welcome that sound. There's no difference between what we consider a welcome sound and an unwelcome sound. Uh, there's no difference besides how we label them. Right? So you can even make that sound your focus. Right? That's it's all perspective. Right? And for me, it was the clicking of the fan. Right? The blowing. I mean, because of my uh, dyslexia, I couldn't tune anything out. Right? So everyone's scribbling on their page and the pens and pencils falling on the ground and the teacher shuffling things. All of that was in my present perception. But the problem would be like um, something extreme, like when um, a fan is oscillating back and forth, when it reaches its, its, its zenith or its nadir, <laughs> it, it clicks, right? Click, and it goes back. So for me, that was incredibly distracting, but I, I could have used that as a talisman of focus. Right? Because in the intervening time between one click and the next, I can try to remain focused and I can use those clicks as a reminder to be focused and to be in that uh, state, which is why I, I uh, argue that we miss so often the superpower of the dyslexic or the superpower of the ADHD or the ASD, someone on the spectrum. True, true power is not any extra skill that is is bestowed because they have the disease, but because of the disease, they have to develop their inherent skills that we all share. It's just unlike others because we can go through life as automatons, right? We can run through life without constantly trying to be mindful. So many of us can be automatic, uh, mindless beings because, geez... Life has gotten pretty simple, pretty easy, pretty safe. Right? But those on the spectrum have to be mindful because as a dyslexic, just about everything I hear or see and as a traumatic, uh, um, traumatized uh, human being, I guess you could say, uh, I can't trust even what I feel. Right? It's that argument, why is it we don't trust our intuition because, again, it's not always right. Yet, we don't mistrust our eyesight. Even after an optical illusion reminds us that our eyes can be just as fallible as our intuition. So why not our understanding, our perception? Right? It's the tetralemma, the tetascoti in everyday life. It's not mistrust, it's trust. But it's trust that we can't know everything and arguably because we are so distracted all the time, why don't we ever stop and go, oh, wait a minute, I might have missed something, right? Why are we not more curious and less judgmental? The argument is because we are disassociated with. That's why the third jhana of Buddhism includes a glimpse of equanimity. Because if you give someone this glimpse, it allows them to recontextualize the ego, but more importantly, it lets them know that there is a possible connection. There is a solution to our malaise. There is hope. 
That's what that's for. Right? Because imagine having spent your first uh, what-have-you time controlling your somatic experience so that you're not constantly bombarded by, like say someone on the autism spectrum mentioned that they're constantly uh, slapping um, imaginary uh, bugs because it'll be their hair against um, some clothing or you know what have you. We tune out so many of these perceptions. Like they say, there seems to be a, a limiting valve on our perception so that we're not bombarded by too much. But it's no different than trauma. Because in a healthy mind, the mind will only give you what you can handle. And that's where emotional regulation comes in. right? That's shamatha, vipassana, you have to be calm when you use insight because something's going to come up. That's guaranteed. So you must remain calm and focused to be able to manage what may come. Right. So this is what these, these uh, lessons are, both creative and destructive. This is why Nietzsche mentioned we have to go from the camel that's carrying around our expectations from others and traditions, you know, peer pressure from dead people, as it were. We need to be the lion before we're the child. So we need to destroy before we create. So mantras are chapter 8. And they're the power of the goddess. They're the emanations. The manifestations. And they're all identical to all the other gods. I love that idea that you can see uh, Indian uh, Dharma as you know millions of different gods, or you can see them as millions of different aspects of one. Because it's both. They are. They can be separate entities, separate avatars, separate uh, beings even. I call them dimensional forms when we talk about Guanyin. Avilokitesra, uh, this uh, Buddha of compassion. She can be a, a him, a her, uh, a what's it. Uh, she can appear as other beings. She can embody even things, animals. Uh, this idea of Shakta and Dharma not being separate. Right? He talks about Shakti and Shaktman, Dharma and Dharman, there are different aspects of these energies, but they're not created or destroyed in the sense that we see things. They're just transmuted or realized or um, I guess even uh, focused on, right? This idea of light, so where you point the light to see these simple truths, right? Uh, power of all the gods, the emanation, yeah, the one and the many. This is beautiful. He mentions this word for word when he's talking about the emanations. Remember how I mentioned earlier that uh, the self and the other, right? The, the perspective of what we think is us is, in this case, it's... Um, it's very similar to Christ's kenosis. So he came to earth to take on the body and the spirit of humanity. 
right? To be one of us, an everyman. And so uh, Shakti, or in this here, uh, Maha, uh, Mahamaya, the, uh, the Devi will, will actually limit herself by choice in our aspect. Allow us uh, to be deluded and believe that we are our own individual and we're separate and all this jazz uh, because it's that disconnection no different than uh, the book of Job or the obscure night of the soul this this lesson that um, when we when we challenge the spirit right it's it's to bring it wisdom it's to to help it become what it's meant to be, to be its best self, right? It says that they're separate, that we're to unite them, right? Where the many becomes the one, right? The one and the many. That's the lesson, to understand the, the, the duality of non-duality. Right? When you understand that yourself is a separate entity, but it is not separate from whatever that power that gives us our being. As we said earlier, that animals have a, a certain kind of intellect, but this ability to well, to know thyself, to understand who we are and, and what our goals could be, what they should be. I mean, I like to say that it takes someone to understand that status quo is not something to be maintained. Status quo is, is how it is as, to, as opposed to how it, it could be or should be. So that's the power that we're given, is to understand that we are, in a sense, a magical being, right? We have arguably infinite potential, yet at the same time, we're so self-limiting that many of us will never, in our lifetimes, awaken to the truth of our potential, of, of our... I mean, I love, uh, what was this recent movie I was watching? It's just as simple as whatever you want your God to be. Right? If it's, if it's, giving a beautiful place for your, your family so that they can live and grow, if it's giving of your time uh, to something you love. Or, I mean, as I said to my wife, if it's simply your love for coloring beautiful pictures, not to make postcards or to hang on the wall or to give away as gifts or to sell to become a famous artist, but simply the act of embodying the beauty, the focus, the somatic experience of itself. Just, just feeling the splendor of being itself can be communing with the goddess or the aspect of God itself. Right? And I love this because this is a quote right from Timosina. I assume many forms based on my own power. Right? This lesson that we can't see 
our self separate from the other. Yet we don't see this connection. It's it's the it's the what did Jung call it? It's the it's tragedy of the opposites or the dichotomy of the opposites. It's a tragedy because we don't see ourselves in others and, and we don't see others in ourselves. Because so many of us suffer because we just won't awaken to these simple lessons, these simple truths. Right, so let's see your names. Uh, big discussion about what some of the names, uh, the colors of some of them uh, have some importance. Uh, I love, he mentions Rishis being tormented uh, and their protection coming from the goddesses. I mean, it's literally the story of Job all over again. I know, and I even mentioned that, right? It's back to the book of Job, obscure night of the soul. Um, text is intended to teach these same lessons of faith, right? Faith um, will sustain in, in, in easy times, but will it in the difficult times, right? So I say in difficult times, when our chit fails us, right? When our cognition, our personal cognition, we must place faith in or on the sat, right? But it's not outside of the self. It's to understand that I just can't get the whole picture here, so I'm just not understanding. Uh, but there is a system to these things, as simple as not someone who's in charge and keeping the system rolling, but an understanding that if you can act free of regret, then cause and effect tells us that things will work out in the end. Um, what I love is he mentions that the uh, Mahadevi is uh, a formless form. Right? Mahalakshmi, uh, she sees the empty, uh, the space outside of herself as an empty void. Right? The void she sees is not dark. She fills it with darkness, right? So that's the difference. It was, it was empty of anything. And this lesson that she filled it with dark first, it's, it's Jung's idea of the shadow. We must uh, understand that until we see that we're made up of all aspects, the yin and yang, the good and the bad, the light and the dark, however you tend to label these opposites, it's what we're made up of. So she's both form and formlessness. She's not one or the other, she is both at once. And we'll get into this a little deeper, it's funny. And it's true that the empty was filled at once. So it's both filled and empty neither here nor there. It's this idea of both being and non-being at once. Right? This idea that Christ was human, but he wasn't. That's the kenosis. Right? We can be both ourselves, our individual egos, but we can also embody the aspect of shakti, of shakti this principle of the divinity, the, whatever you want to call it, the god, the goddess, the divine aspect, providence, uh, whatever you want to call it, even if you want to call it Spinoza's uh, agnostic idea of what God is. Right? It's not negation. It's an affirmation of the unity of the opposites. That's the misunderstanding. Same as uh, when, when we teach Buddhism. 
right? Impermanence. So many people see that as a negative. Nothing lasts. Well, no. How is that a negative? You're supposed to embrace this truth. If you know that nothing lasts, then instead of relishing the good, we, we, you know, we should relish the good is what I mean. We should spend our time appreciating what we have. And when we don't have what we need, appreciate that time also because it teaches us to appreciate what we have and tries our spirits. So we need to remember that the good and the bad are imposters both. So in tough times, why do we not remember that these two shall pass, but the same truth that when things are going good, why do we forget that these two shall not last? So the lessons in the Yi Jing, the Chinese Book of Change, comes back up again, that fullness is not our goal. Our goal is to balance the opposites. Because if you reach fullness, like maximum success, well, that's the beginning of the next cycle. So you're actually going to go back to the beginning and start over. This is why that in John of the Cross is uh, Obscure Night of the Soul or um, the Devi Mahatmya, uh, these books, uh, Nietzsche's Zabathusra, Jung's Liber Novus, uh, the Upanishads, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the, uh, the Yoga Sutras of Pantanjali, they're all teaching this exact same lesson. There's no difference between any of them. They've just changed the characters a little bit. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like a, a remake, like Cape Fear, between you know. But forget about one being better than the other. The idea here, just like we were talking about the Mahabdevi, uh, her her book has been rewritten over and over again in different ways in different uh, styles. The lessons remain. It's just the characters that change, right? So it's an idea of we're all embodied expressions. That's what Tantra is, right? So lust, uh, kama, I mean, they're all part of being. Right? It's not this, but it's something else, right? So it's not negation. It's admitting our own limits. Right? I love this. So essentially, we mentioned kamachando. So this is sensual obsession. That's what we need to rein in. Right? He talks about pure sattva. So it's no different than the Ubermensch. Right? If we look at uh, Saraswati uh, being perfect shirt, day and night, all these aspects are just to teach us that perfection is not the lack of anything. Perfection is a unity of all of the aspects into one. Uh, so, and then I mentioned that there's an emotional narrative required because of this primal truth. Nothing different re right now. It's, it's this idea that we're either thinking everything's terrible or everything's great or vice versa. We just have to put everything into context, right? The Mahakali, right? She can be at once the, the creator and the destroyer, I guess, in a sense, right? All share a body. Avatars are one. This union of all aspects the formless and the form, not just the opposites. It's the union of all aspects. That's a big, big, big part of it. I love that they go on and they talk about Mahakali. Her form is of ten heads, not that different from Guanyin, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Uh, it's all in references to the ten directions. Right? 
all-pervading is what it means. It goes to everywhere. That's what the lesson is in Guanyin, that she has all these heads, all these eyes, all these ears, so she can see and hear and, and reach out and help everybody up, this idea. But it relates to the ten directions that's been lost to history. So it's not just east, west, south, north, all that, those regular directions. There's two more that are important because those directions lie within each and every one of what every one of us. Those directions are the zenith and the nadir. The zenith is what you could achieve. That's your ultimate. And the nadir is the worst, the least you can be. Because right? he goes on and talks about um, tamas, rajas, and sattva. These ideas of good, beneficial, negative, you know, bad, and then something that is just kind of like spinning your wheels. It's not good, it's not bad, it's it's neither. Right? So he goes on, he's talking a little bit more about that. I like this one line, right? The truth of creation is that creator creates creation, and it's the creation that creates the creator. It's this recursive loop, like uh, Douglas Hofstetter's again. I have no doubt he was heavily influenced by the Upanishads. Douglas Hofstetter sees the self as a recursive loop. I am uh, a strange loop, as I say, as I say, as I say. Um, the colors of the goddess, not directly applying to us. So it's very important about transformation. I say transmutation. I got that from being a Tibetan Buddhist as a young lad. That's a common translation. You're transmuting this stuff. I'm going to mention it later. What do we do with these poisons of greed and aversion um, by transforming them into their opposites. Uh, the Brahma Viharas, these good um, beneficial boundless energies as they call them. The boundless joys. Like you can't have too much compassion. You can't have too much um, charitable understanding. You can't have too much empathetic joy. It's impossible. But you can have too much doubt. You can have too much jealousy. Right? Again, we talk about the one and the many again. We're talking about the dimensional bodies of avatars that can appear in any way they want. A very young in, right? The self and the other. Tathagata Garva as well. This idea that a peacock's egg does not show the true potential of its colors, but that doesn't mean it. Those the potentiality is not there. Right? Uh, and then final, all is helpless without Shakti. Again, this is the truth. Right? So our struggle to focus, right? We're always trying to identify the self. That's the root of Tantra, right? So we're trying to give a coherent sense of identity. This is where Upaya comes in, right? Efficient means. So how do we embody the mind, the body, and the ego, right? The intellect or the ego. How do we embody all of this as one aspect and not vacillate between? Right? Being present in the body and nowhere else, the intellect and nowhere else. And, you know, that's this lesson of the unity of the opposites, the idea that the goddess is pure consciousness and the modified thought that is the self. She truly is the one and the other. The self and the I are unified by realizing that your true self is not separate from this universal self, as it were, right? And again, no different than Jesus and the understanding of kenosis, 
the fact that he emptied himself of all that he was so that he could take on this this uh, earth earthly bound aspect that we come to know as Jesus. But the lesson also teaches us that we can do the exact same thing, that we can empty ourselves of the aspect that we consider to be us, selfishly, and embody, well, in this case, the imitation of Christ that's mentioned uh, often enough. The lesson is what I've said before, that by trying to emulate your idol, it's in failing that you realize who you truly are. Right? So you're supposed to fake it till you make it with the goal in mind. Right? And I love that I wrote that down. God is creation. Right? She is all of the mantras, all of the manifestations. She is the foundation of all that manifests. God is creation. So as Nietzsche said, if you don't have this aspect in you to believe in something, then simply trust. Trust that there is an aspect to you that can achieve more than you would ever give yourself credit for. Right? That's the kriya, the karma yoga. It's the action, right? Cognition, action. Go out and get her done. All right, so uh, let's see. Ooh, we're on to the question and answers now, which was quite interesting. Not a lot of, of content, but there's a couple of good questions. So the first question was, why is Tantra secret? Uh, and it's important. It's to protect, obviously, the path, but more importantly, to keep like spiritual tourists from harming themselves or others. Uh, because, again, we've seen this with so many gu uh, gurus uh, who have used this, uh, just even the, um, the call to authority to abuse uh, their position, never mind having some spiritual power. Like, if, if you have some control over your ego, but at the same time you have a want to control others with your ego, there's a lot of damage that can happen there. Right? Because this is why he says there's a fire in Tantra that's not meant for everyone. Right? This efficacy is based in the commitment and proper training, proper instruction. Because... It's not for everyone. And the same lesson of the Pratyeka Buddha, that not everyone can be a solo practitioner because of how difficult it is to not just learn, but to embody these truths, right? Uh, let's see here. So, it says, all references are private, he says, for a number of reasons, but mainly they're all an inner experience that cannot be shared. Right? Thoughts to words, experience, right? Ideas are hard to express. So, since it's a personal experience and nearly impossible to express, any word would fail. So it becomes very difficult. It's not an obfuscation. They're trying to hide anything. It's just because when it comes to the truth of explaining some of these, what would you call them? Extrasensory perceptions... Right? Meaning, when you start to understand that there's something beyond the empirical basis of all things, that takes a certain level of commitment and understanding and support that really can only be done within the Sangha. 
right? Because I used to, I've told you this before, I used to be completely against this idea of empowerments and, uh, and being within the tradition. But I've come to realize that it's not just mandatory, but it's also kind of a requirement. I know that sounds like it's the same thing, but I mean, they're not saying you can't become uh, a tantric practitioner unless you're approved by a guru. What they're saying is, without the support and guidance of, and it doesn't have to be a super guru, it can even be a fellow practitioner, but without the support and guidance, you can't achieve these states, these um, expressions, these embodiments. Right? So I loved how he talked, because he really did explain that, right? We can... Um, uh, just yeah, we can only know when we're committed. So the quote that I put down, uh, well, first, ruled by you, your shakti, your willpower, not your social norms, right? So there is Upanishad's truth of Nietzsche's will to power is willenmacht. I prefer to call it your will, your what propels your will, or the will to propel, either yourself or other, but almost always it's itself. But from Saint John of the cross, and it is obscure night of the soul. He says, These things are neither known nor understood when they are sought, but when they are found and practiced. Right? It's no different than what I said earlier about psychedelics. Psychedelics can't help everyone because most people don't buy in. Right? They're either fighting the experience while they're in it, or they're trying to map something on it that wasn't there. Right? So next, the tantra kept, uh, it's kept secret to prevent anybody uh, maybe doing some evil. But more importantly, I've mentioned this with Buddhism before, these azuras, these what to us seem like gods with some extra power, but they're incredibly diluted because they use the power of tantra to achieve a certain level of skill, but then ego got in the way and that became their goal the acquisition of skills rather than freedom from um, suffering right? again that's why the human and a Devi's motivation must be pure right and what's this uh, all these aesthetic practices are to recognize the self obviously I love that which is the highest goal of Tantra. I love that, because uh, I uh, became essentially Yogacara and Madhyamaka, and I say a Chitta Matran, Chitta Matra, which is just a mind matrix, because I loved the fact that they didn't fart around with any, um, well, any BS, and just like, hey, our entire goal is to contextualize the self. When you understand the self, you can achieve what we're looking for here, right? Uh, devotion, how important devotion is, baby steps, right? I love, I wrote this down here, where poisons to perfections. I mentioned this earlier, because there was the one question, how do we convert delusion, moha, into something more beneficial? And that's the lessons of the Brahma-Viharas. Brahma-Viharas is the, um, uh, the resting place, or the, uh, well, Vai is ultimate, Hara is like hut, so it's like the uh, the house 
of the God, so the ultimate place. These are these boundless joys of energies, um, empathetic joy, um, uh, compassion, uh, mudita, karuna. Off the top of my head, uh, not coming to me. But all of this, he says, you must learn our potential for this negative energy. You're not destroying this negative energy, you're just transmuting it. Right? This is shadow work. Right? Sadhana. The divine nature with proper devotion will defeat the poisons of the ego. Right? So you cannot extinguish. You must integrate your shadow. Right? Your darkness is a part of you, part of us. Right? Energy is not destroyed. It is only converted. So we're not killing. It's only transmuted or transformed. Right? Those poisons into the Brahma-Viharas. We must transmute them. Right? Negative emotions force us to learn how to manage these. Right? It's the aridity of the soul to help encourage enlightenment. Right? We, we suffer to save our souls. Right? It's very, very Job in a sense. Right? The unknown within, this potential, as I call it, the shikaku, this is a truth that you've awakened to, that you already had. Innate awareness. Awakening to, this is your Tathagata Garbha. That translates as your Buddha nature. And there's a question about time. I love that. Uh, he just, uh, in Tantra, they see time as potential energy. So time is freedom. It doesn't have to go beyond that. I love that he says, we do not have auspicious moments in our modern time. Right? We don't have meaning. We don't have trust. We don't have hope. Right? Awe in our daily life is missing. Right? And with that, we can understand good, bad, and how it relates to time. Our concepts as temporal objects will always be limited when we understand how limited we are in our understanding. Right? Of course, he addresses upaya. Right? This skillful means that we all have to understand, right? The illusion of knowledge. It was a question about what is chitta versus shiva versus shakti. There's an illusion here that you have to understand that you're supposed to find a fusion of all these aspects into one, right? This is shakta upaya, right? Because we're not seeing or understanding this non-duality because we're all trapped in duality, we must continue baby steps to use this shakta upaya, this primacy, context or need, whatever happens to be beneficial at the time, we use that to hopefully achieve liberation. Uh, so we're in the final stretch here, last two pages of notes. Um, I love, we mentioned upaya. So again, upaya is efficient means, skillful means in Sanskrit. It just means what helps you achieve the end result. Right? It's kind of um, the end is justify the means sort of thing. So it's whatever skillfully allows you to get there. Be it mantra, mudra, asana, right? So movement, uh, kankrama, walking meditation, whatever might get you there. And the quote that I wrote down is, when you separate upaya from the system being discussed, you lose 
the meaning. Right? There's a famous quote about with with a why, you can take on any what or any how. Right? Upaya cannot be separated from the philosophy. Ritual becomes empty motion without meaning. I like that. And he mentioned a little bit about the animal heads, mainly because they had specific mantras. Right? Just a, a way to teach some more lessons. Kind of like I've mentioned before, the Chinese astrology uses the animals to teach some lessons. Um, not very specifically um, the animals, but the, the animals have meaning. It's this cultural thing, right? Language is so limiting, so we use um, metaphor and illusion and all this other stuff. And he talks about the bija mantra. I find that very awesome. The name of it, bija, uh, that's seed. So, I mean, the seed mantra, right? The great seed mantra. This idea that a mantra allows you to begin to grow your lotus seat in Sukhavati, right? Your lotus seat being a metaphor for an understanding of the true nature of self and other and the universe and reality, all of that jazz. The seed mantra, bija. Uh, each animal had its meaning, right? Like the lion and courage, that I just marked down, right? Even as I said earlier, even Acharya G said, this is a much deeper subject that he'd love to get, to, you know, the time to go in and, and look into it. Again, we're talking a little bit about avidya, uh, ignorance, uh, moha, in the first chapter, um, delusion, and it's ignorance being the root of vidya. Right? So in the first chapter, Mahamaya is trying to teach this and controlling our volition because our volition makes up our aspects. Right? And that is where good and bad comes from when we begin to assign these labels because tamas, moha, kama being desire. So it's actually our attachment is what he was getting at here. Our attachment to the world, our attachment to um, expectations, uh, attachment to ego. It, it's a bit of a, an oxymoron in a sense because as a tantric, you believe that everything is upaya or can be used as upaya. Everything is, is a doorway uh, to the divine. It's, it's an avenue to understanding. But at the same time, everything can be delusional. Everything can hinder you from this same goal. Right? So again, to remind us that anger manifests, it's the separation that's integral. When we think that anger is something external or someone else caused it or it's something that needs to be uh, eliminated, that's when we become helpless, is what he was talking about. This idea that when we understand that we have the power over even our own anger, our own fury, that is when we become liberated because of what we can achieve. Right? So, but remember, it's only subdued momentarily. This is why you need to have this understanding and why it gets so demoralizing. It's what he actually said. And it relates to trauma-sensitive mindfulness and it re relates to um, the obscure night of the soul. So St. John, 
and I highly recommend uh, The Obscure Night of the Soul, commonly known as The Dark Night of the Soul. I highly recommend reading it. You can listen to it on LibriVox. And the reason why is it's not really what most people say it is. It's not about how to commune with God and have this connection with God. In reality, it's about people that I've talked about, these people with six souls, uh, as William James call them, uh, these people that have an aridity of the spirit, as uh, St. John said. It's this idea that nothing brings us sucker, nothing brings us joy. Right? We don't have that ananda in our life. We don't have that joy. Yes, it has to do with the disconnection. But what I was getting at is, so for a long time, we never talked about the dangers of trauma and mindfulness and meditation. So we're now talking about how that can make things worse. You can go to a meditation retreat, try to meditate because of your trauma, because of what's going on in your head. You can make things way worse. Well, you can come out of there way worse. But we haven't begun to talk about all of these people that get deterred from meditation because, not because they feel worse, but because they don't feel any better. This is what John was talking about. What happens if nothing brings you pleasure anymore? Nothing. Not even God. Not even your contemplation. Worse yet, he says, are people who will vacillate between getting the, uh, the consolations from prayer uh, or feeling peace and oneness from meditation, and then sometimes you don't. But what would you do if you went on a 10-day meditation and you didn't get anything from it? Right? The example I'll give is, what happens if you completely buy in to just about everything aesthetically, but you don't believe to your very core of being or trust? So you can go to the church, you can kneel, you can chant, you can pray, you can read the book, you can go through all the motions, but you get none of the benefits because the first step is commitment. As I said earlier, you can chant uh, the Psalms wrong, but if you chant them with the utmost of devotion and commitment and confidence, then you will see the benefit because the benefit arises from within, not from without, right? He goes on and talks about the Azuras. You have to remember, oh, that's what I was going to mention. And, and I would say one step further is imagine if you believe that do this and everything will be great and you try it and it did subdue some of the anger for a short term, but what happens when you come to realize that they were wrong? You can't subdue this forever. It's only temporary. That subduing them is momentary, not defeated how do you feel if you realized, yes, you're bruised but undefeated, but this is a war? And he even mentioned it earlier that he likes and, and ex explains why we, we uh, define this as a war. Because it's not a battle that will come to an end. It is a war because it w it's, it's ever, it's ceaseless, right? Because you subdue your anger. You don't eliminate it. Right? Same can be said about pleasure. That's a big misunderstanding. Right? Joy is not something that bubbles to the surface. Causeless. Joy has a cause. And it's usually this communion, this connection, meaning, 
uh, creation, right? This um, charity. Uh, I mean, uh, from Corinthians, right? My my religion is faith, hope, and love. But above all else is love, right? But communion, right? So, last little bit. I talk about tantra being all about all emotions are certain, but we we must differentiate. Good versus evil is a problematic. I like to say the beneficial from the harmful, um, from what will help you progress versus hinder your progress. Right? I say that begins with admitting we are delusional. We are moha and must wake up to our truth. Vidya, right? Understanding, knowledge, wisdom. Parusha, moksha. Mukti, right? Wisdom, understanding, however you want to define it. In the Buddhist concept, uh, it's simply to reduce our suffering, right? We can't eliminate it, right? Suffering is guaranteed. Impermanence is guaranteed. And your concept of self is not what you think it is. In fact, the impermanence of self is guaranteed because every moment you rebuild what you consider to be you, citta. Every moment you reattach. In fact, it connects to the bija mantra uh, because it's, it's called little seeds that you put in to your storehouse, your uh, amala, amala vijnana. Amala vijnana means your storehouse. It's different, right? Because you got your tatha, got the garba. Garba is womb, right? So when you, if you were to try to say bija and garba, it seems a little weird. You're not giving birth to something because it's already there. That's why we use this idea of amala, right? Amala, it's like um, precious. You see of it that way. You're precious, right? That which is the heart of your being. Right? So the self is just this collection of seeds. These I call it our um, configuration file of the mind. It's a list of preferences. You like blue, you don't like green, you like uh, you know burgers, uh, what have you. Whatever your preferences, your dislikes, your aversions, literally the three poisons of aversion, uh, delusion, and, and anger. Well, depending on how you translate them, right? All of these negative emotions, uh, preferences, versus the positive ones, right? But the hardest thing to do is renunciation. Why? Because the first step is to renounce the self. Right? Imagine when almost all of our suffering comes from this disconnection, It's disconnection from truths. But when we disconnect from the self, what does that leave us? It leaves us unsure and afraid. That's why the Sanskrit word shraddha means confidence.
commitment and devotion. Because what do you do in the face of doubt? You trust. What do you do in the face of failure? You commit. What do you do in the face of uncertainty? Confidence. That's, that's our will. So go out and propel it as such, as Nietzsche would say. That's the Kriya, the Kama. The Kriya, more importantly, right? Go out and will it, as it were, and that's what they'd say. So on that, I'll leave it at that. My apologies, I was hoping to make it uh, within the hour, but um, I guess I just took too many notes. But I can't thank you enough uh, for spending the time. Uh, hopefully anything that I've figured out over the decades that I've been working with this might help you. Uh, not to mention uh, the fact that I don't mind uh, saying things that fly in the face of what some people want to consider uh, the truth. I consider myself to be a... I kind of think back to the Godfather movies, right? It's a take the cannolis and leave the gun. It's the same here. Even the Buddha said so. Vedanta said so. Take what works. You're a paya, the efficient means. And leave what doesn't, right? As Churi said, he's a patriarch of uh, Tiantai. Uh, he came up with this... Uh, calm, abiding, right, Guan, uh, Chiguan, this practice reminding us of uh, the balance of uh, calm introspection. But he said, right, upaya, efficient means, skillful means, but there are no two alike. Because he said, just as there are innumerable sentient beings, there are endless uh, doorways to entry, to the Dharma of Nirvana. Just a long way of saying, just as there is no end to people on the earth, there is no end for the paths for them to follow to reduce their malaise, reduce their suffering. You know, actually, truly embody the being, the creation they want to be. So for that, have a fabulous day.